Welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. In this episode, Ed Cunningham, Oscar-winning documentary producer, former ABC ESPN analyst and NFL player, talks with me about his journey spanning multiple decades and three different careers. What happens when you reach the pinnacle? You're living your dream and it's not quite what you expect. Ed talks about that and so much more as he generously shares the details of how he transitioned through each career milestone. Ed's work is high profile, so that's certainly interesting. Uh, Beyond the cool factor, though, Ed provides great advice that is both practical and motivational. Enjoy this episode. And um, it's funny, Ed, because I don't think we we set out to do this, but a lot of our interviews, um, we seem to spend some time with athletes and with people where sport was such a huge part of their life. And it, it may just be our interest in network, too, because we love sports. So it just is kind of funny how it, it weaves its way into the podcast a lot that um, people that have found you know, passion and fulfillment through sports. So I'm really excited to talk to you about your experiences and your career. Um, you know, you're easy to Google, <laughs> and I did a little trolling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it it's, can be good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. I I can't imagine, right, that it's like, it's just uh, in terms of once you're out there for the world to see you and, and hear you, in your case, you know, there's probably a lot more vulnerability that comes with that. But um well, staying off social media helps. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, just never engaged. I'm, I, I just uh, I just started on LinkedIn, and I'm finding it to be an amazing tool. Yep. And connecting with people I haven't seen in 20 years and all this stuff, and I realized, oh, this is, this is grown-up social media. Yeah. <laughs> because people here have a purpose, not just to be seen and heard, but they're, you know, they're try to better their career or make connections for work. And right. so I finally pulled the, I, I, I'm not fully free of social media, but LinkedIn's obviously quite different than yep. Instagram and Twitter. And right. That, so yeah, LinkedIn's great. Yeah. I've, I've, I've both there. Um, they have a lot of on-demand training and learning that's available. That's, that's some good content. And then you're right. Just from a networking and content that people post, it's typically productive and useful and, and you can get something out of it. Yeah, I mean, sure. I found myself, I've never scrolled through social media feeds. Right. Ever, just because I find it such a time suck. Yeah. And I, last night I was on LinkedIn for half an hour, just looking at what people had posted that I like and trust and respect. Yeah. And there's four or five things I got out of it that were really thoughtful and engaging. And it was just, it, it wasn't a waste of time. It right. wasn't. It wasn't just being bored. It was, wow, this is engaging. I'm yeah. learning something here. Exactly. Yeah. Look at yeah. us. We just but did that, a little. That helped, me, that helped me at the height of my ESPN career because I it became a little bit of a flashpoint to not be on social media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a good choice. I'm sure. For me. So maybe yeah. we could start with your current situation and what you're, what you're doing right now uh, and maybe talk a little bit about what, a typical day is like for you? Well, a typical, 
you know, in our new reality yeah. where everyone's working from home, I've worked from home my whole career. Wow. So when I got out of the NFL um, and started broadcasting, I'd travel to game sites and I'd go into the studio occasionally. But for the most part, I was working from home and doing my studying and research and interviews and preparation at home. So I've had a home office, gosh, since 1997. Wow. And so for me, the transition has been having kids home, yeah. <laughs> being, a, yeah. being a teacher and a dad, yeah. um, which is hard <laughs> yes. for everyone, uh, especially with young kids. Um, so my, my day-to-day is I work from home, and so I've always had what I consider a flex schedule mm-hmm. where I really follow how I feel and what I'm interested in. You know, obviously you have a schedule, and if I have a call or a meeting I have to go to, that changes the sort of flex nature of it. But I tend to spread my workout throughout the day. I, I really enjoy what I do, mm-hmm. so I don't think of it as sitting down at the desk and all I have to, you know, I have some tasks that are boring and, you know, <laughs> looking at budgets gets old and right. stuff like that. But for me, I've always been uh, able to work from home and just kind of do it as I feel like I want to do it. You know, I'll find myself sometimes... I won't start anything for work till 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, you know, then I have all this energy and, and, you know, some, some thoughts about what I want to do and have gone through it. And I can burn through two or three hours of work and be really efficient. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's one of the freedoms of controlling your own schedule is, you know, where I don't think we're meant to plug in at 8.30 a.m. and unplug at 5.30 Right. Um, I think that, you know, for people who work in offices or have a job that is more, you know, moment to moment time consuming, I can see where you have to do that. But for me, I've always had a flex schedule and I've always worked sort of when I feel like it. And that's been a real luxury for me um, for my entire professional career because I don't feel like it's work. I'm doing it when I want to do it, how I want to do it. I approach it in my own way. And if I'm not into it, I just get up and go do something else. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't force myself uh, to sort of, you know, I hear people say, oh, it's a real grind. Yeah. And I always think, well, oh, that sounds bad. That sounds hard. <laughs> that sounds like it hurts. Right. <laughs> I don't want to grind. Yeah. yeah. I want to enjoy it. And I want to bring uh, all of myself to it, not just this need to finish a task, but, you know, to be open to Uh, how I feel and what I'm thinking and do I really want to do this? And, you know, I I find at the end of the day, some of the things I, you know, sort of don't like to do, don't get done (laughs) sometimes. Yeah. And then I'll, you know, get up sort of first thing the next morning, like, okay, you have to review this budget. You have to review this cut of this film. Right. Um, And, you know, I'll I'll just sort of hunker down and do it. Are you fully working in production and producing? Is that, is that, if you were to yeah. label, yeah, that's, that's yeah, yeah. When I was when I was broadcasting in about 2003, I was you know full time broadcaster for ABC and ESPN, and the the luxury of that job was it was seasonal work because I pretty much only worked during the football season, right? And even during the football season, my work week was pretty condensed because we'd do a game on Saturday, I'd travel on Thursday. So the work week was sort of Wednesday to Saturday evening. And so I always, alongside of announcing, I was always producing, always 
had a film in production or we were starting one up because I had extra time. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, it was, um, I don't even want to call it a side hustle. It was sort of a hobby because I just enjoy it so much. And I've, I've just enjoyed storytelling. Uh, it's been a part of my life since I was in college. I started doing radio actually when I was in oh. college. So I've been at storytelling for a really long time. And so it, you know, it was really a distraction from the, you know, the, the sort of corporate job I had, <laughs> I could go and be an entrepreneur and do my own thing and yeah. have a great influence on the outcome. And so I'd always been doing it, but then when I chose to leave ESPN, um, obviously walked away from a salary and benefits and all that. Right. But since then, which was 2016, it's been the full-time producing job, which is very entrepreneurial. You know, people ask what a producer does, and yeah. I, the answer is everything yeah. <laughs> from finance to development to pitching to selling to storytelling to editing to music to, wow. you know, the whole thing. And for me, I just love being knee deep in the process. It's, uh, it's very rewarding. It's a terrific career. So, yeah, my day to day job is an independent producer. And then trying to expand from that. And, and really, I've changed over the last, oh, eight or ten months where I've realized that, you know, a documentary film is one piece to the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And it can become the platform for other things, like a merchandise line or a Broadway show. So we're developing two of our documentaries into Broadway musicals. Oh, now. my gosh. So what, what happens is when you start... People love stories, no matter what platform or what or what package it comes in. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Um, and so that's what I've been trying to do is expand my business to look beyond, quote unquote, just a documentary film and say, what else can we do with this? Where else can this live? Are there other products that can come off of this? Wow. And then in the new digital media realm is starting to figure out ways to get directly to consumer. Because our business is sort of a business-to-business operation. So my company makes a film, we sell it to Netflix, business-to-business, money changes hands, right? Right. Well, how do we we as storytellers and how do we as filmmakers with the new digital media now fully engaged? And with the coronavirus, I think what's happened is a couple of things. Nonfiction storytelling has risen to the top. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is almost no conversation in pop culture right now about scripted material. If you notice, it's all about The Last Dance right. with Michael Jordan on ESPN. It's all about Tiger King on Netflix. So these these stories are really connecting with people. So that's sort of the next hurdle I'm looking at is how do we get directly to consumers rather than necessarily having just to go to another business to get to their consumers. Right. And so that's been an exciting thing to start to explore and expand a bit as an entrepreneur and start to think of okay, we've got this great story. Well, is there a merchandise line we could launch Mm -hmm. when this film comes out? And those are some of the things we're starting to explore is to understanding the power of great stories and great storytelling and how else can you get to consumers and engage with them directly. So I do have two questions just immediately based on what you just said. And maybe the first is I want to hear about the Oscar win and that whole, <laughs> what that was like and, and what number film that was for you. Um, I, th- I think when I read it was maybe your second or third, but I'm not sure. And then certainly I'd love to talk about your transition out of ESPN. And I think, you know, in terms of Crossroads and 
decision points and, you know, people figuring out their path. I'm, I'm a big believer that, you know, paths are not linear and there's lots of different ways you can approach yeah. your career and your life. So, but I would love to hear the Oscar story because that's super cool. And I don't know that I've ever talked to anyone one-on-one -on -one about their Oscar win. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was my third or fourth film. Wow. They sort of overlap. Um, you know, at that time when we won that, I had a film that had been in production for four years. So, wow. you know, it's like you have different stages, uh, and with nonfiction storytelling, um, sometimes you just have to follow what happens in life, unless it's a historical mm -hmm. story, which has already happened. Right. Um, most of our films, well, you know, all of our films have had a real life component to them, real time component. Okay. Um, and so Undefeated, the film that won the Oscar, uh, it was a high school football film. And I at first turned it down. I didn't want to work on it. Mm. And the reason was, is I was getting my fill of football storytelling <laughs> as an analyst on Saturdays for ESPN. Right. And I had always looked at filmmaking. We made a film called New York Doll, which was about a glam punk rock band. We made a film called The King of Kong, which was about the battle for the world record on Donkey Kong, the old arcade classic. So these were, and even though that was technically a sports film and the way we, it, it was just a film about competition, um, I had sort of not wanted to do football right. uh, in my hobby. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the hobby was to sort of get away and get off of the field. But the filmmakers, uh, the directors, Dan Lindsay and TJ Martin, they were such good guys. They, they got what the story was about. It wasn't about high school football. It was about these kids and these groups of co this group of coaches who came together and, and did something just unique and special. And it was my partner who was, you know, he, he basically said, look, we need a football expert on this, <laughs> on this production. Right. Um, and so you don't have a choice. And, and I'm so, <laughs> you know, uh, I have such gratitude for him sort of pushing me to get on board. Um, and it really was such a unique, beautiful film. The filmmakers, they moved to Memphis, Tennessee for almost eight months, and they filmed every single day with this team. And we had thousands of hours of footage to cull from. And so it took a long time in post-production. It took about a year and a half, really, to craft the story properly. And, you know, you start going through the process of the film got acquired, and then it got released, and people loved it, and then... We got notice, hey, you're nominated for an Academy Award. And, you know, you sort of at that moment think, well, there, there it is. That, that, that's all you need. You got nominated. You know, who cares what happens after that? So we were just going through the process. And I don't think any of us really felt like, oh, this is going to win. Um, up to that point, and even though there are social issues in the documentary, of course, there's racism and class difference and what it's like to grow up as a young African-American kid in this country in a bad neighborhood. So it has some social issues in it, but they're not in the forefront. The kids right. and their story and the coaches and their story were the, were the, the lead of, of how we told that story. So there was a, you know, there was a documentaries typically that win Academy Awards have a really sort of beating heart social issue. Um, and ours didn't. And it sort of broke the mold a little bit in that way. You know, there were some people who wrote about, you know, this is sort of the first non- direct issues type of film that's won a documentary academy award um so when we went to the ceremony I, you know let's just put on a tux and go have a good time and right see some cool people and we got to go to these great parties beforehand and i met you know a bunch of movie stars and you know it was really fun 
But that was what I thought the journey was going to be, is just this really cool film that we were very proud of. People loved it. It really impacted a lot of people in, in sports and in life. And when Robert Downey Jr. opened the envelope and said, undefeated, I blacked out. I, I don't remember going from my chair to the stage. I don't remember it at all. Wow. And all of a sudden, I woke up standing on the stage at this huge theater, and I just, all of a sudden, it was like I woke up and I was on the stage, and the directors were getting their trophies. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, because I just didn't expect it. You, yeah. you know, it's one of those things, It's you just, you can't really plan for it. At that moment, producing was still my hobby. It was still something I was doing as, you know, something for fun on the side. Right. And my phone, which was on vibrate, started vibrating <laughs> while I was on stage, and it didn't stop till it died three oh hours my later. Gosh. <laughs> and I couldn't, I physically could not return all the texts and emails yeah. that I had over the next two days. I, I just gave up because it was thousands that, that were coming in. And, you know, you see the power of an Academy Award. It is a big deal. It is a very uh, prestigious thing. So for me, it felt a bit lucky. I knew the film was great, and I was so proud of what we had done and how far how, how far we had come from sort of our first meetings of, okay, we're going to go film there. We don't know what we're going to capture. We'll come back. We'll all look at it. You know, I, I just look back at the journey on how to get there, but it really was a life-changing event. I, you know, in the next couple of weeks was when I started, I, I think my vision of what my career was flipped. Mm -hmm. And I went from producing was a hobby to know producing is what I do. Mm -hmm. And I do this broadcasting thing to help support that. I mean, it just, it, my whole sort of vision of who I was and what I did flipped. And I think even though that was my third or fourth film, it gave me the confidence, like, okay, you are good at this. Mm -hmm. You can do this at the top level. And not that I, I don't know that I particularly needed that, but it was just a sort of nudge that, yeah. hey, you can do this as a career. You know what you're doing. You're good at it. You're, you're a good teammate. You know, there were six of us sort of key people who worked on that film. And, I, you know, I really knew my role and tried to excel at it and be helpful and supportive and, uh, you know, I was the football expert, so I had to make sure, okay, we got to get the football stuff right. Can't right. get that wrong. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, but, you know what you know, I think is... Such a, and, and the other part for me, too, was that I've learned the people who worked on that film mm -hmm. were and are really good people. They're top professionals. Yeah. They're thoughtful. They're considerate. They're accountable. They work hard. They, they don't need to be overmanaged to do what they're doing. And that for me has been something I've been growing and learning more and more as I go forward. Our business is very project based. Right. You know, it's almost like property development and it's very much like property development. And what I've learned is if the key three or four people, if there's one bad apple in there, don't do the project, mm -hmm. don't get involved. And I think that was what undefeated really locked in for me is the story is important. How you tell it's important. But being along for the ride with good, honest, hardworking people—that's really, to me, the achievement. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, there's still we we all still connect and talk, and you know, it's 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 been a lifelong journey uh, with that film. But I, you know, that night was it was unique. It was awfully uh, it was awfully fun. Who were you uh, most starstruck by?
Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, or for information on our upcoming workshops, visit www.TeresaFreemanAssociates.com for more information. One of the big things that happens on the weekend, or the you know sort of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, leaving and leading into the broadcast on Sunday, all of the major agencies have these huge, just massive parties, and it's usually at one of the one of the founders or one of the partners' homes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ari Emanuel, who is a you know sort of a famous Hollywood agent, we were with uh, WME William Morris Endeavor, was who represented the film. So we all got invited to his house. Wow. And <laughs> I walked in <laughs> and I'm standing at the party and my partner is a guy named Seth Gordon, the guy that I work with on there. And he's really uh, built a great career as a director and executive producer. And as a show, he was an executive producer on the Goldbergs, which is a long run yeah. on ABC. And yeah. so he's really really built himself a nice career and so we were standing there in the middle of this party and and there were just recognizable people everywhere and the nice part about it was everyone's guard was down Mm. there was no there was no oh that's so and so you can't go over there i mean you can just walk up and start talking to anyone you want and hey what are you doing oh what project oh congratulations it was just very sort of low-key and back then it's a little different now with netflix and Disney Plus and Apple, but back then, the the four or five main studios really controlled Hollywood. Right. And so we're standing there in the middle of this party with 500 people or whatever, and my partner's with me, Seth Gordon, and he says, hey, do you want to meet three heads of studios? <laughs> and we turned around, and the head of Fox, the head of Universal, and the head of, oh, uh, I think it was Warner Brothers, were all just standing there chatting with their wives. Yeah. And he goes, come on, let's go meet. Because he, he had met a couple of them. So we just walked over, and I'm sitting there talking to the head of Fox's wife about kids. Right. And parenting. And so that, for me, was sort of the, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little different. I'm talking to three of the people <laughs> that run major studios in Hollywood just at a cocktail party, just talking about life. Right. We didn't talk about projects. We didn't talk about, hey, you should come in and pitch us up. None of that was was the conversation it was just people at a party having a good time so that that for me was really cool yeah it was a really unique time so now tell me a little bit well first of all congratulations and i think the one thing i would say too about what you were describing and i feel like it's such an important thing to note and for people to consider which is identifying what you love to do. And you even talked about it at the top of this conversation around how you structure your day. And I think regardless of where you are in your life, when you start to think about what is it that I thrive at doing, what do I love doing, what gives me energy, what what brings me strength, like if you start thinking in those terms, you can start to have a life that's filled with those things. And it seems like for you, I mean, I'm interested, we'll talk about football and and being an analyst, but at least what you just talked about in terms of this part of your career and life, it seems like you 
went from it being a hobby to being something that's more front and center because you love doing it and because you're good at it. It's that it's that great mixture of being good at something and loving it. And then it, like you said earlier, it doesn't really feel like work. So I don't know how conscious you've been, and maybe we'll talk about that more as we go, but about making those choices. Um, because I think when you're less experienced, it's, it's sometimes tougher to make that call. And you are making choices based on money or you're making choices based on what you've been told you're good at or or just because you're, you know, graded academia doesn't necessarily mean you should be an academic forever. So I, I just think it's interesting the, you know, that thread that seems to be so far, at least with the production piece around you really enjoyed it and you followed it. Yeah, I, it's interesting you bring up being younger and a lot of what drove me was, am I interested in it? Mm -hmm. Am I learning something? Does it make me curious? I think the biggest thing I fall back on is, is my curiosity peaked? Mm. And I've learned it's become a really uh, fundamental tool for what I do where, you know, a lot of what we do is on spec. We, we don't sell something. We go raise a little finance or put our own money into it. We go shoot and, and see if we can sell it later. And that's a little backwards from how some producers, some producers will go to Disney Plus and pitch them a show and then they get a work for hire position right. to go make the show. Right. But what I've really been able to hone in on is, and this is what I, you know, with my education, I was the same way, is am I curious? Does this make me want to do more research? Does this make me want to talk to someone else about it? Does this make me want to get to the other level of the story. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is what's happening, what's underneath it? Why is it happening? Why is this person making these choices? And I think that's really what I've come down to is, if I'm curious about something, if I'm interested in it on a flow and emotional level, right. not just, yeah. you know, not just, oh, that's funny or it's smart or whatever, it's does it move me emotionally? Do I feel something? Do I feel happy? Do I feel elated? Do I feel sad? Do I feel um, angry because this is happening, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that was one of the things with Undefeated, our film that won the Academy Award. I never really knew I, and couldn't know what it was like for a young African-American boy, because that's who we covered, um, to grow up in those circumstances. And then to watch the footage of some of these kids and their home lives and what they went through was just, it, it, it was overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It was very sad. And at the same time, it was incredibly inspiring that they got up every day and went and did it. And they had a smile on their face and they enjoyed themselves despite all of the insanity around them. Mm -hmm. And this was a very violent, very violent uh, environment that they grew up in. And so... What that's what's driven me is, am I curious about it? Do I want to learn more? And then, of course, my job has been to present that information in a way that makes the audience curious and makes them want to learn more. Right. That's sort of the skill set that I've gotten. But I think that's the thing that I've learned most is if I'm curious about it and I want to learn more, then that's all I need. Yeah, I, I'll go to the ends of the earth. I'll work, you know, 14 hour days. And because then it doesn't feel like work because I'm, I'm driving something that's a I like to learn. I like to learn new things. I like to learn about people and what motivates them. And that's really been my, you know, I sort of thought about that over the last four or five years. Why do I do this? Why do I get engaged? And it just comes down to, am I curious about it? Right. Does it peak a level of interest that can become 
nearly fanatical. You got to be a bit fanatical right. sometimes when you're trying to tell a story, um, especially, you know, we've had films that have taken six or seven years to complete, but that's a long time to stay curious. So, right. you know, how do you stay engaged with that? And that, that's really what's driven me is, am I curious about it? Is every day going to bring something new that I hadn't even thought of right. before? How and long? then to the question of how you get there, you yeah. know, I sort of stumbled into this, but at the same time, I think there was a, a sort of vision for what I wanted to do on a day-to-day basis that formed pretty early on. I was, I was hosting radio when I was uh, in the NFL. I had my own radio show, and I was very quickly on, I started working at CBS, I was very quickly on network television, so it sort of was accelerated Mm-hmm. mainly because I was a football player and I made it to the NFL and that opened doors that wouldn't be open for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of, I stumbled through that, but what I realized, you know, whatever, 25, 30 years in is I really like to learn. I like to be curious. I like to be surprised mm-hmm. at what I find out. And that's really been the driving force for me. So for ESPN, it's on, we're on those we're sort of walking backwards, but I, I do think it's just interesting based on the conversation. So for you to go from NFL to broadcasting, you just talked about that was like maybe not so intentional, but given your background in college and that you had this interest, it, I, I suspect you were capable of doing what's required in that role as an analyst. So in terms of being on, on network television and the, the skills that you need to deliver in that role, did you ha- was there a lot you had to do to develop or you had already spent some time developing those skills? Yeah, that's, you know, it's interesting because I watch a lot of coaches and, and I've worked with coaches and players who they come off the field and because they were sort of a good quote or had a personality, these networks hire them and then just shove them into the role. Right. So, but wait, what do I do? You know, there's, yeah. there's um, oftentimes there's very little training or even discussion hmm. about what an analyst does or what, you know, I, I sort of laugh. I was technically, I was a pundit, which mm. sort of makes me laugh because that's such a pejorative term sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, how do you have an opinion? Why do you have that opinion? What research have you done to back up what you're saying? Who have you talked to? Who have you interviewed? And then I was really, um, here, here's the one thing that I would say has been the biggest help for me, and I think it could be helpful for people starting out in their career, always have a side hustle. Mm. Always have something else you're doing, right? For some people, maybe it's working for a nonprofit or, or donating time to feed the hungry. Or mm-hmm. Always have something else going on because you never know when the main hustle is going to change and you got to jump into that side hustle, make mm-hmm. that your thing. Right. So my side hustle while I was playing football was I started broadcasting. I had an interest mm-hmm. in it. I started doing it a little bit in college. Um, I actually produced a video about our national championship season at Washington my senior year. So I had some producing experience. But while I was playing, uh, this story still blows my mind. I got a I got a call from a local AM station. This was back when sports radio right. was just at its sort of beginning. And it was an AM station that was news, but at night from 7 to 10, they had sports, right? They were sort of one of the first people in the Phoenix market that had a, a dedicated sports talk show. And because I was a good quote and, you know, I could be on camera and talk, I got asked to come on a show for three hours and help co-host. 
So my very first wow. gig in radio, I go into the studio, and the guy I'm working with, and I knew him, I'd gotten to know him, and you know, we had a nice rapport, we're on the air. At the 12-minute break, so 12 minutes into the show, he looks over, he goes, you doing okay, everything good? I'm like, yeah, this is great. He goes, okay, I'm heading home. And he got up and left. Uh, and I had to host the next two hours and 45 minutes all by myself. Oh, my gosh. And you had no idea? And it was one of those... No idea. I mean, I'd been on radio several times to that point, so but it was always with other people, right? So that's sort of an easy thing. You just right people who have a personality, and you're talking about certain subjects. You can talk for ten or fifteen minutes at a time and make that easy. And so here I was on the in the deep end with no floaty, and (laughs) you know I had literally three minutes of a commercial break to prepare to come back. Wow. And there was the newsreader there who I became friends with, and I just looked at him and I said, what do I do? And he said, start giving out the phone number and start pressing people to call. Mm. I was like, okay. So he came back and I just started saying, hey, this is KTAR. Uh, you know, here's our number. If you got something you want to talk about, you want to ask about the Cardinals, call in. And it worked. Started getting calls and got great calls and people were, you know, excited to talk to a player from the team and, you know, all this other stuff. But I remember that moment because it was sink or swim for me. And then from there, um, I hosted my own show for a couple of seasons. And then I actually got my first TV gig while I was still playing. So uh, and they, for arena football. They let they you do that? In Arizona. They let you have What's like, that? they let you have these other sources of income while your main source of income is playing professional. Like there aren't rules against having your hands in too many pots. Um, some teams, uh, may have that. We didn't. I, I actually, when I took the TV gig, I took it knowing that it might upset my team and my owner. But at that point in my life, I was already, my last couple years in the NFL, I was just a dead man walking. I I, I couldn't wait to not be playing NFL football Mm. at that point. It was just brutal and bad coaches and bad management bad teammates and it was just wearing me out so at that point i was sort of willing to take that risk, yeah yeah um knowing that it might not be picked up but no there's no as long as you're willing and able to do your job um and these are you know pretty easy gigs i had they weren't you know full-time jobs but what was really terrific was my first tv job i was working with complete professionals people had been at it forever as directors and producers and they really took me under their wing and said, hey, you should learn how to do this. Don't just show up and have a personality. Learn how the broadcast works. Learn how we work in the production truck. So I would, this was a team that uh, produced the Phoenix Suns and then later the Arizona Diamondbacks games. So I would go sit in the production truck while they were producing a Suns basketball game, an NBA game. So I could hear what the graphics team was doing. I could hear what the producer's job was. I could see what the director's job was. So that as I continued to do the job, while I was, it was learning on the job, so it was great repetition, Right. but I just really immersed myself in learning the craft. And I had people that were just good people. Again, I go back to that. You know, it's, I say, I say a lot now, it's the people, not the project. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this group of, of people just really, because I brought energy, I brought enthusiasm, I was good on air, I had a personality. So they had a vested interest. You know, right. I, the better I did, the better their production looked. Right. 
but they really just took an interest in me learning and because I took an interest and I was curious and I did the work and I improved. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've done a lot of work around the hacker culture and people are, you know, sort of confused at what hackers do. But the whole key with the hacker culture is if you show up and ask questions and then come back and you've grown from those questions, you've learned the next thing, they'll embrace you immediately. If they'll bring you in, no matter who you are, they'll bring you in and they'll help you learn the craft. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what I've always realized. You know, if, if people are giving you help and you're going above and beyond and you're working hard and you're doing the extra work and you're improving and you're showing that their input matters, that's really important for people. Right. They want to engage people like that. You know, they want their sort of wisdom and what they've learned to be used Mm -hmm. by others. And that was a really nice lesson. So my training was on the job training and it is, it can be a very technical job commenting on sports. And unfortunately, you know, some athletes and coaches when they're thrust into that position just have no clue what they're doing and personality and being glib only goes so far. Mm -hmm. You haven't done your homework and you haven't studied and you haven't had some reps and, you know, understand how to carry a show, especially when a game is out of hand. You know, it's easy to call a sport when it's a close game and it's hotly contested. Right. But when it's 50 to 10 in the third quarter, There's nothing to you've t- got another hour and a half of a broadcast to go. Yeah. You better have done some homework. You better have some stories, some, some special interest and human interest stories to start filtering in. Right. And the only way you do that is through work and study. Mm-hmm. And so very early on, my first TV gig was just, and it was the WB61 in Phoenix, Arizona. So we have, you know, probably 5,000 viewers for some of the games we were doing. Mm-hmm. So it was a really nice sort of Petri dish to learn how to do it. But it's really just diving in and, and just being voracious about learning and changing and adapting and moving forward. And, you know, I know uniquely, well, not uniquely, but I would assume this is the same in many industries. In the sports television industry, it's it's high pressure. It's live television. Right. When those lights go on, there are no excuses. You can't not be prepared. Not a do-over. down from five to go on camera. Right. And so I love that sort of pressure cooker who's very similar to being an athlete. Um, and I love that pressure cooker and, and the, you know, having to learn it as you go. But, you know, this is one thing I learned is because I saw young people coming into the business and those who brought a smile on their face, enthusiasm, curiosity, willing to do more, willing to be a part of the team, they always got brought back. They always moved up to bigger and better jobs. Mm. Almost every person I worked with who was a producer and a director started as a production assistant. And that's the bottom of the totem pole. You know, you're making coffee and running errands and making copies and right. doing all that stuff. But if you're doing it and learning and getting better, it's like the hacker culture. They embrace you. They mm-hmm. want you around. And I'm sure that's part of other industries yeah. as well. But that's one of the things I learned is be a good teammate. Be, be Do your role, but then help others. Right. Try to improve what you're doing and learn other things. And so I learned that really early on. And, and thankfully, it was with just a really good group of people who had been at it for a while and could really be helpful. You know, I think that that concept of being able to pick out people that make you better 
and and who you surround yeah. yourself with, both like professionally and then you know depending where you are in your in your path and journey. But you know, Paul's uh, I think Paul's dad used to say, you know, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. So it's a little bit like who are you um, spending time with, and are they is are they making your game better? Or are you making their game better? Like that's definitely something that I've found to be true professionally, just as your people are trying to evolve in their career in the corporate space or, you know, just who do you, who do you see as your peers? And you might even reach a little bit and make, make people that are testing you and, and can help you develop and grow. Yeah. I, you know, you learn so much about, you know, I think when you're, I know when I was younger, especially as a producer, I always had this feeling of well, what, what if this is the last film I produce? Mm-hmm. What if I don't find any other subjects that are worthy of making a film? There was this fear of this is finite. Right. This is, this can't be infinite. This can't be expansive, but it turns out it is. Everything is. Yeah. Yeah. And that all to me goes back to what are you interested in? What, what are you chasing? What are you trying to improve on? And then most importantly is who you're working with. You know, go back to people versus projects. I'll choose the people every single time now. And I've made mistakes. I've had projects that have blown up mm-hmm. where I just woke up one day and said, wow, that person's a jerk. I don't want to work with that anymore. Right, right. <laughs> and, and I've had, you know, the fortune of, you know, having enough money and having enough resources to do that sometimes. But it's so empowering to make that choice and yeah. just say, I don't want to work with that person. Yeah. They're not a good person. Right. And I think that's so key, especially in human resources, which, you know, is such an important part of especially big companies. And that was what was really fortunate for me is I had a really amazing experience at ESPN with the people I work for. Mm-hmm. And I know there's there's some stories and some reputations that have been written in books and all that. But my experience at ESPN was very passionate people very dedicated people and then my direct boss was very humane if people were sick or they had you know their wife was giving birth and they couldn't go do a show he was always able to adjust and help you wow and also push you very hard to be good at your job right my boss at espn loved the fact that i was a filmmaker (laughs) just loved it yeah what he would say is okay take that storytelling and how do you translate it to what you do for us? Mm-hmm. So he would really push me, you know, to say, hey, you're great at that. You're great at this. Well, how can they work together? What can you do that's better? And also just further education. That's a great um, leader. So I had such a wonderful experience uh, at a major company where I felt like my bosses valued me. I felt like they liked me. I felt like they challenged me. It's not like I didn't have some tough conversations. Right. Sometimes, you know, I'd, I'd have feet call sometimes and say, hey, what were you talking about during this period? Like, I wasn't following, you know, I got critiques, but it was done in a way that was respectful and thoughtful and um, meant to move forward, not, you know, point and blame and be angry at, but to move it forward. So I had a really good experience at ESPN with that exact thing. People that I liked, mm-hmm. I respected who pushed me to get better and do better while at the same time allowing me to be an individual being who I was. And so that experience was just uh, really a beautiful, beautiful 17 years that I spent at ESPN, especially under this one particular boss. His name was Ed Placey, still his name actually, Um, (laughs) who just, I felt like really got it. 
and really understood and, and was thoughtful and kind and also drove us. Yeah. And that's a very unique balance. That's a great uh, combo. Strike. So then that begs the question, you have this great experience, you're doing all these really cool things that you love, you have a great boss, why do you leave? If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfreemanassociates.com. Why, why do I leave? Yeah, why do you decide to leave ESPN? Well, I, like a lot of people, had started to have real ethical issues with the sport I was covering. So football is not safe for the human body. <laughs> That's sort of the bottom line. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I had worked really hard at tirelessly to learn about the new rules that were coming in. And in college football, it's called targeting, where, you, you know, you're not allowed to hit the player in the head. And right. so I worked really hard and to be on the sort of cutting edge of how do we make the sport safer? But the truth is when gigantic men are running full speed at each other with the intent of running into each other, mm -hmm. there is no safe version of that. And personally, two things happen. Um, some ex-teammates started committing suicide, especially guys I played with in the NFL because of CTE. And that really started to weigh on me because even though I was – quote unquote, a journalist, and I was meant to comment on the game and wasn't being told by anybody at ESPN or, you know, hey, you got to really support the sport. As a matter of fact, my boss at ESPN was like, hey, learn this, be outspoken, mm. you know, learn what you're saying, have some reasoning behind what you're saying, but don't shy away from, from the controversies around the sport. But at the same time, when you're the, when you're the analyst, when you're the color analyst on the game, you, you do have a obligation to the audience to get them excited about what's happening, to keep them engaged with what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And I just started having this real problem of, you know, a player would get hurt. I was involved in some broadcasts where no one noticed, and there's a kid on the field who's clearly concussed, and he's still in the game. Mm -hmm. And I would be making commentary of, this is ridiculous, somebody needs to see this, somebody needs to get him off the field, and at the same time feeling helpless. You know, it's like right. I wanted to jump out of the booth and run down and call timeout and say, that kid's hurt. You got to get him off the field. And that level of disconnect, I just couldn't keep disconnecting how I felt mm -hmm. from the job. Right. And the job was great. I had great peers. I had great coworkers. I was being paid well. It was a high-profile job. It was live television, which I loved. And I just was having a hard time with how I felt about the sport I was covering. And then really the, the, the pinprick that made me uh, choose to leave was in April of 2016, a bunch of my colleagues got laid off. Mm. And some people I'd worked with that season, the previous season had been laid off. And I just had this crisis of guilt mm. <laughs> where I thought, you know, I'm covering a sport I don't think it's safe, and I'm covering kids. I mean, these are 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. And as mm -hmm. you get older, you start to realize how they are still kids. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're young adults, sure. But, I mean, we all remember back to college. You, <laughs> you were just finding your way in the world. Right, right. And so I had that going on. And then when I had colleagues being let go, I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, it's it's was a literal 
one to one. If I quit, it opens up a job for someone else who wants the job. Mm. And so that was really the pen prick for me to make that decision. And it happened that day. So I got the Yahoo Sports broke the news that ESPN was laying off a hundred people. And so I saw that in my news feed and then I started getting texts. So I got texts from my brother. Hey, are you okay? Your job going to be okay? Mm-hmm. And I just sat in my, I'd gone and gotten a coffee and I was just about to go upstairs and get to work at the kitchen table. And I, I sat in my car for almost three hours, just calling people. I called, you know, everyone, my best friend and, and all people close to me knew I was, it was starting to wear thin on me a little bit. So I just sort of needed reassurance, like, hey, man, we've heard you talking about leaving for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> like, just pull the ripcord. <laughs> um, and it was a it was a really emotional day. And I'll never forget, I called my boss, Ed Placey, and we talked for a while. And, and he, had, he had thought he was going to lose me to producing because my producing career. Right. So he sort of laughed. He's like, you know, I, I sort of thought we were going to get this call from you at some point. And he was very appreciative that I was thoughtful of the other people who were losing yeah. their job. But then, you know, we had an overall department boss that I knew and liked. And he said, well, you know, why don't you give Lee a call and, and you tell him personally. Hmm. So I called my boss, boss's boss. And here is a guy who had spent the day, because the news broke. They, they were going to do this more humanely, where, you know, they'd have people come in or if they were out in the field calling directly. But the news broke they were laying these people off so in the course of a day this guy had to let go a hundred people yeah some people he'd worked with for 20 years who had families and he knew their kids and so i called him and you know he was an emotional he was in an emotional state it was a very hard day right and he you know he the first thing he said was hey don't worry you're safe we love you you know you're still doing a great job you're still a key part of this and i said well Actually, I'm calling to quit. And it, he just went silent. Mm. And he goes, wait, what? I go, yeah, I, don't, I just, I can't do this anymore. I'm, you know, I've got a young family. I don't want to be on the road, my producing business. By the end of the conversation, he was hysterically laughing. He was like, on a day like today, I never expected someone to call and quit. Right, right. <laughs> and so it became this real bonding moment with this guy. Huh. And it just had a horrific day. Yeah. And it was a bit of a relief for him. And I, I, I felt very proud of that because I was doing it for the right reasons and he knew it. And so did my other boss. They knew it. They were supportive, good people. And uh, it was, he, he hung up, he goes, this is the strangest call I've ever had. <laughs> did you have because any? He, you know, people were scrambling to keep jobs. Right. And here I was calling and saying, hey, here's. Here's my broadcasting jacket or microphone. I'm turning it in and, and calling it a career. Did you have any fear? It's so interesting as you think, like, as you're talking this through and you talk about your mindset and the decision point for you. I, I, it's like I appreciate that you seem clear on who you are and, and what you want and that at this point it was no longer sustainable for you. Like so many people, I think the more natural inclination is like impact, right? Impact of this choice. What What if, what if, what if? And it seems like, and poten- potentially for you, maybe financially you had some security so you could be more, um, what's the word? Like, it, like in the moment, <laughs> like this yeah. is the choice I'm going to make. But even so, it seems like there's an element of, things will work out like you don't seem 
very much someone that would be impacted by fear or fear-based decision-making? Um, fear, fear was a part of it. Yeah. Um, producing can be very feast or famine. Yeah. You know, you can have some years where you make plenty of money and you can have some years that you lose money, right? You know, and, and sometimes that's your personal money that you're losing. So there was, there was obviously some fear element. Um, but I, I think part of my growth came out of my experience in the NFL. Um, I hated playing in the NFL from day one and I did it for five years. Really? And part of that was, oh, it, it was just brutal. It was just brutal. I went from a college program where I had great coaches, good people. They cared about us off the field. You know, my, my individual coach, he, when I'd go in to meet with him, we'd spend as much time about how's school going? How's your family? You dating anybody? You know, it was more about me as a person than it was, you've got to work harder. And you, you know, there was this, I learned a really important lesson a couple of years ago. And, and it was something I sort of struggled with. Competition comes in two forms. There's positive competition. There's negative competition. Mm -hmm. Positive competition is where you use competition to better yourself and learn about yourself. Negative competition is when your self-value, your value or your self-worth is based on your performance. Mm -hmm. And that was such a key thing for me to learn. And really when I look at my kids playing sports or how we coach kids, it's really maddening how much we focus on negative competition. Mm -hmm. Whereas the whole idea of playing sports, when you, when you bake it into the academic sort of overarching thing of high school and college, it should only be about positive competition. It should only be about improving yourself and challenging yourself and working with others and solving problems and overcoming obstacles together and learning those things but what really happens is it all becomes about what does that player do for me right oh you're not doing that anymore you're gone so my experience from college which was so positive and was not barbaric football can be very barbaric if, if anybody's ever been around the game and you get around the line of scrimmage where i played it's brutal it is full-on hand-to-hand combat and you're fully covered in armor so you can really run into each other. And so when I got to the NFL, you know, it's like, oh, I've made it. I, I'm, I'm an NFL player. And, oh, I'm starting on an NFL team. And my friends are coming. You know, we used to play at RFK Stadium in yeah. Washington, D.C. And all my high school buddies and my high school coach would come. And there was all this sort of guilt and shame around, well, I'm doing this thing that's really awesome according to everyone else, mm -hmm. and I literally hate it. I hate it almost every day except the last day of the season when I was playing in the NFL. And I look back at that, and I, I, I don't blame myself for that. I, don't, I couldn't have made a different choice, but I, I think since then I've realized, like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go do something every day where I don't respect my boss, I don't really like many of the people I'm working with, and – they're using me like a pawn mm -hmm. because that's what it was. And I just, you know, from, from when I left the NFL and that release of pressure the day I left mm -hmm. for good mm -hmm. and the team I was playing for wanted me back. I went in for my exit interview with that coach and he's like, Hey, we love having our team. Let's get you a new contract. And I was like, ah, 
nah, actually, I'm not. <laughs> he was he was sort of bummed, and I actually liked my last coach in the NFL when I was with the Seahawks, and he was a really good guy, and we sort of laughed, and and he and it was interesting. Um, Dennis Erickson was his name. He knew I had other things going on. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, I get it. You got a life, mm-hmm. <laughs> so he yeah. knew, you know that that. Yeah. I was at the end of my rope. And so I think when it came to make the decision with ESPN and, and other decisions I've made you know, recently, I quit a project because one of the partners was just, just a bad person is I just don't want to wake up and hate what I'm doing. And I don't want to wake up and hate who I'm working with and working for. Mm-hmm. And I think that came out of my NFL experience because that was five years. That wasn't a short time. That was a lot of days of, Oh, I don't want to do this and we haven't body hurts i broke my finger yesterday i you know my ankle still hurts from the game and i just didn't want to do it and is that um we haven't really talked so much about the kind of leading up to to your college career and then going nfl but i presume you at some point early on maybe like you had a passion for the sport and loved it and obviously pursued it in a way that differentiates you from others and then to be in that situation is that somewhat devastating to realize this thing that you work so hard for and you have it and to your point other people are envious and think it, it's it's all that is that really um, yeah. complicated and devastating and hard to work through I would think yeah the NFL was like heartbreaking was disappointing. yeah it was really just such a disappointment. And I had gone to a high school with a great football program, a really terrific head coach who I still keep in touch with, yeah. who cared about me and the other players deeply, really actually cared. I got to college and I had the same experience. And I had a head coach who was just one of the best managers and CEOs I've, I could ever imagine. He's just a brilliant guy. And then the guy who coached me directly, my position coach, really deeply cared about. I still talk to him today. We talk all the time. As a matter of fact, when I left ESPN, he was one of the first people to call me and say, congratulations. I'm glad you took a stand. And this yeah. is the guy who made his life coaching football. Right. It's because he cared about me as a person. He cared about me far more than what I did out on that field. And it was soul crushing. The NFL was, I mean, I, 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 I vividly remember I was on vacation with my family at the beach and I had to leave early because training camp was starting. And as I was driving to the airport, I got physically ill. I had to pull over to the side of the road and throw up. I was so wow. distraught with knowing I was going to go brutalize my body, get yelled out by a jerk that I hated because I wasn't doing my job well enough. And we were going to lose almost every game we played because I played for a bad team. So there was no silver lining yeah. for me and what I was doing. And it was, it was, it was devastating. It was really hard to realize, oh, I've made it. And oh my God, this sucks. Right. And it was, it was a daily grind of that. There were very, very few bright spots. My last year with the Seahawks, I, 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 really enjoyed that and I liked the coaches and I made some good players and I was back in Seattle where I went to college so I got to reconnect with my friends there and have a social life so that year sort of set aside but the four years prior to that were just knuckle grinding body breaking labor Mm -hmm. working for people who were jerks and it was hard yeah it was hard to get to that pinnacle have it just be well frankly it was inhumane 
is what it was. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't realize that then. I was in my early 20s and then to my mid-20s. You know, it's sort of hard to admit that and hard to come to grips with that, but that's what it was for me. It was just not aligned with what I wanted to do. So, yeah, it was it was hard. It was hard to get to that quote-unquote pinnacle and realize, like, oh, this is, this is a pile of dog poop. It's in the pinnacle. Right. <laughs> I'm stepping. <laughs> I, I, every day I go and step in dog poop when I go to work. Did and that's you... a pretty hard reality. I think it was part of the reason I lasted so long was I just mm. had this hope, like, okay, maybe if we do this and we win more games and you know it, it just and that, that just never happened it, it, my last season with the Seahawks set aside because I really did enjoy that season yeah but boy but but I my but at that point I had already I, I had already the ship had already sailed I was already ready to be done right so I, I'm not sure that that positive experience really sunk in as much as it would have had had that been my first year in the NFL and not my last and do you feel like because you had the side hustle with broadcasting and you had been doing some of that work that when you decided to leave, it, it maybe wasn't as scary or you, you had this other thing that you knew, like how certain were you of that path forward when you made the decision to leave the NFL? Not certain at all. Okay. Um, I had been doing some work in broadcasting. I'd done a bunch of radio and I'd been on uh, calling arena football games on television up to that point. But there was, you know, no guarantee that I was going to get a job because I wasn't a star. I wasn't a, you know, starting quarterback on a Super Bowl championship team. Right. I was a starting center on a really bad team, but finished fourth in the NFC East. So, you know, it wasn't. Right. It wasn't like I played a high-profile <laughs> position or had a big name. Um, but I, again, being with good people, my agent, uh, while I was playing football, had experience with broadcasting. And he had negotiated my deals to do radio and television at the time. And he just said, look, let's put together a tape and let's get you out there. Mm. And uh, so I had really good guidance. Um, uh, uh, you know, so I had a good coach. I had sort of a good life coach in yeah. my agent. Uh, again, another really good person who cared far more about me than my contract and what I was doing. And I think that's important for people to sort of filter out. Does someone really care about you or they only care about you as a commodity? Yeah. And that's pretty easy to tell with people. And that's what I had with my agent, a guy named Mike Sullivan. It was just, uh, and he's still, he works for the Denver Broncos now. He's still involved in the game and just a really good guy. And he just said, look, let's go do this. And I think his, his belief that I could do it helped me. Cause I think I was like, well, oh God, what am I going to do? Am I going to go sell cars? You know, <laughs> you know I'd made some money, but I, you yeah. know, back then I wasn't making a million and a half bucks a year and, set for the rest of my life I was going to have to work right uh, and so that that really helped was having an agent and a um, you know someone to represent me properly and say hey this guy's good at it he's got some repetitions and and we landed a job at CBS so the very next fall I was I was calling games on CBS wow it's pretty amazing I um I feel like I've kept you a while and I just have a couple more questions I, I am interested I'm curious about even when you think back to, you know, when you were maybe high school, college, or as you've grown in your career, like what are some of your rituals, habits, like what are some of the things that you do that help you to be successful? Because in each of these things you've described, you've reached a measure of success that I think is differentiated from what a lot of people experience. I'm curious if there are things, like if you were to attribute that to something or a couple of things, would, how would you do that? I think the, the 
biggest the biggest tool I have, and I've carried it forward since college. So I got to college, yeah, and I was completely away from home. I grew up in Northern Virginia, ended up in Seattle, Washington, which is like going from yeah. moon to the Mars it's... to Mars. I mean, they couldn't right. be more different places. And so I had a big personal adjustment to learn just how to live a life without my parents and in this weird city that I didn't really know anybody except from the football team. But what I realized was I was a full-time college student. I was a full-time football player because I don't care what anybody says. That's a full-time College job. sports are professionalized. Yeah. There is no other. You, you can say they're not professional athletes, but the sport is professionalized. Right. Because they're playing. Right. And it's a full-time job. You know, I was, during the season, it was 30, 35 hours a week when you had in travel and all that stuff on top of school. And then the other piece was, I wanted to be social. I was at college. I wanted to go to parties. I joined a fraternity. I wanted to go on road trips. I didn't want to just study and just play football. And so I had a counselor. I, you know, it's so nice to remember some of these people that really helped me figure things out. And so the football team had an academic counselor. And so I just went and met with her. And, and we had to, until you, until you could prove you could handle both, you had to go to study table just because they wanted to stay on top of you because they knew this is right. a lot. And right. for a kid coming out of high school, they need guidance. And so, again, our co my college coach, my head coach, Don James, was just a really forward thing. And so we had, a, we had three or four full-time academic counselors that we could go work with. And this woman just sat me down. And she said, let me give you the gift of time management. <laughs> and I said, well, what's that? <laughs> and we yeah. sat down and she literally handed me a calendar. You know, one of those. And I still, it's funny, I left um, uh, virtual calendars. I, I'm now back to writing my calendar down by hand. So I have one of those old out-of-glance. Yep, good old out-of-glance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And... What she did was she gave me the power of, first of all, time is an illusion. You have all the time in the world to do whatever you want, right? Uh, you know, once you sort of step back from, oh, there's only 14 hours in a day. It's like, yeah, but when you start spreading that over time, you got a lot of time mm -hmm. in your life, mm -hmm. you know? And what I started realizing was if I focus and do the things I have to do, then I have a lot more time to do the things I want to do. Mm -hmm. So how do I schedule my day? What am I doing when? What has to get done? What do I want to get done? And I prioritize. Almost every day I'll sit down and I'll sort of review my calendar of, you know, well, I've got an interview with Teresa. Not, you know, sort of right. know what the time-stamped commitments are. But the rest of the day is my oyster. Mm -hmm. I can do with it what I want if... I have a plan and that's what this woman gave me and I from my very first well we were in quarters but my first quarter in school I always had a very diligent day-to-day -day idea of what had to get done mm. and what I was able to do in college was I was able to do great in school I took challenging courses I didn't take you know sort of an easy Right. You know, everyone knows the test stuff. I challenged myself academically, which I wanted. I was able to excel at football, help a team win a national championship, be a captain, be all conference, be all that stuff. And I also got to have a terrific social life while I was in college. I went to almost all the parties. <laughs> I went on all the road trips. Yeah. I did all of those things that you should be doing in college. 
And now I've been able to transition that into my professional life. I'm very diligent about my day and what I'm doing and what has to get done. And I don't leave it to chance. I write it down. I keep a sheet of paper. I fold it in half. And each day I write down the four or five things I want to get done. Mm -hmm. And then if something pops up that I can't get done right there, I'll just add it to the list. So that way I don't have the stress of, oh, I forgot to do, I forgot to get back. You know, I don't have that stress of. Right. That we all have of, oh, what, what haven't I done? You know, because it's all right there. If I ever have a question, just look at the sheet. Oh, I got to do that next. And it takes away all of the stress and pressure that you can feel, especially when you add kids in the mix. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because right. that turns your whole life upside down, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, the more I can focus and not have the stress of what do I need to do next? What should I be doing with my time? What I find is I have a whole lot more free time. I have a lot more time to, you know, I think it's really important to have free time where you don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, go for a walk. I'll go for a drive sometimes. I live in a beautiful area in Long Beach, California. I'll just go drive down and sit at the beach for a while. And I might make a phone call or two for work. But sometimes it's just to to be myself. And what am I feeling? What am I thinking? what's stressing me? Why is that stressing me? What can I do about it? And I'm, you know, I'm not perfect. I have moments of blowing things off and, you know, being lazy and all that. But as long as I have um, my time management skills, which I got my first couple of weeks in college. Yeah. And I'm so thankful for, but that's my whole key is what am I doing? When am I doing it? And why am I doing it? And also just keeping a record. So there's no stress around things getting done. You know, a running tally of what needs to get done has been really helpful. I think, too, what you're describing, it's so interesting as I think about this conversation, like you're driving your own life. And it seems like such a simple thing to say, but Mm. I think a lot of us (laughs) suffer from life happens to us versus Mm. you're controlling your own destiny to some extent, right? By, By taking ownership of your time or taking ownership of your career and feeling like, this is not fulfilling or I have real ethical issues here or I'm taking control of of even the football, right? Like something that you worked for so hard. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's interesting that it seems from the this conversation and everything that you've talked about, you're someone that's you've learned these tools earlier of embraced like I can a little bit like I can drive my own destiny or I can drive how my life will be fulfilling based on the choices that I'm making. And it may- choices you hit the you hit the right word in choice yeah our our superpower mm-hmm. is choice yeah that is the thing that reality and and you know you and i are having this conversation it's completely different for both of us right <laughs> i can't experience this conversation as you're experiencing it and you can't experience it as i'm experiencing it it's because we have different realities around us Correct. because of the choices you've made because of the choices I've made and I think the biggest thing I've learned is choices are superpower it really is responsibility is freedom mm-hmm. taking responsibility for yourself and those close to you like your children that's freedom it can be overwhelming and being a grown-up an adult can be pretty damn hard sometimes yeah but if you take responsibility and you do it gracefully and with a smile on your face And that doesn't mean there aren't huge challenges, you know, death in the family, sickness, but you can take responsibility 
in a way, you know, especially in your middle ages that you couldn't in your 20s. Right. And then the, the final piece for me is I either cause it or I allow it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd much rather spend time in causing my reality than just allowing it to unfold. Mm-hmm. You know, I could have I could have continued working at ESPN for another decade. Right. And, you know, had a made a bunch more money and, and continue to do something that I, at its core, wasn't comfortable with. So I caused a change. Right. So those are sort of the key things for me is choice is my superpower. Responsibility is freedom. Actually taking responsibility and doing the things that I've either, you know, sort of chosen or have come into my life with kids or whatever. And then finally, am I causing or allowing things to happen? Yeah. And everyone has those moments. And you're right. There are some people like, oh, woe is me. This is happening. I mean, I've had those moments. Right. Where sometimes you're like, oh, my gosh, how many more calls can I get where something's screwed up? <laughs> right. But then it's back to what's my choice? How am I going to respond? Yeah. Am I, am I going to allow this to continue or am I going to cause a change? And if I stay in those sort of four elements of me, um, which are in all of us, and I think a lot of us get to a place where, you know, I, I don't know if you remember that Dunkin' Donuts commercial where the guy would get up early in time to make <laughs> yeah. the donuts, oh, so... and sort of shuffle off the Yeah. Water. And it's... it was sort of a funny commercial, but that I think a lot of people get in that. And, and sometimes they have to. You know, sometimes you just have to have a job. You have to pay your rent. You have right. to feed your kids. You know, there, there are times in your life where, you know, that's necessary. But I think for the most part, if early on you can start with this idea, and it's hard. You know, some kids grow up in just horrific circumstances where it does feel like everything's happening to them and it's just hard to get by that but once you get by that you can cause any change you want in your life right if you're in a bad marriage you can get out of it if you're in a bad job you can go find a new one and i know that that's different for different people at different times um but for me if i stay in those things where i have a moment-to-moment choice of how I how I'm going to react, how I'm going to act, how I'm going to behave, who I am, how I'm presenting myself to other people, and then also the choices I make, the projects I work on, the things I do with my kids. All of it can be can be looked at in: Am I allowing this to happen, or am I causing this to happen? Yeah, and I that really... for me has been the biggest. I do control my own reality. Right, I do. You know, you know this idea that this is some magic box where oh this thing I no I. I and there are chance and there are things that'll happen and hurdles and, you know, huge life challenges. But on a moment to moment basis, I really am in control of my reality. Yeah. Would you say any of those things, if you think back, this is something I, I like to ask people regularly. And I think you've said it, but I just want to make sure if you think about who you were at, you know, 18 and kind of heading out to the world, is there any other advice you would give? Um, young Ed, anything that you would say to yourself then with the lens and the experience that you have now, outside of what you just described, which I think is pretty profound in and of itself? Um, Be nice to yourself. Yeah. Learn to love yourself. Yeah. Learn to respect yourself. Learn, know that you're a good person. Know that you have value, regardless of what anyone else says. You know, my when I first got to college, I actually had a coach who ended up getting fired, but he was a really abusive, awful human being. And I remember I was 3,000 miles from home. I was in this new environment. 
And I had this guy who was making my life miserable. I mean, he, he made me cry on a regular basis. And so that time, 18, 19 years old, was really a time when I just had a lot of doubt about myself. I didn't like myself. And I remember I, I heard this I heard this thing where, where people said, the only person you should be hard on is yourself. And if I can curse, that's total bullshit. <laughs> you should not be hard on yourself. Yeah. You should love yourself. You should care for yourself. You should respect yourself. You should forgive yourself. Learn how to forgive yourself. And all of those things then can grow out to your relationships. If you can't love yourself, you can't love others. If you can't forgive yourself, you can't forgive others. If you can't be empathetic and compassionate about yourself, you can't do that with others. And I think that would be the, the real message. And, right. and look, it may not land for younger Ed because I was in that moment and it's different. Right. But I think that's what I would, would really forget all the, cho- you know, forget, oh, football is going to work out or you're going to end up a movie producer. And you're going to have a great life and, you know, two great kids, you know, all this stuff. I, to me, the key would be learn how to love yourself, learn how to respect yourself, learn how to forgive yourself and take it easy on yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't have to flog yourself to be successful. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to feel e- enormous guilt and shame when you make a mistake. Admit it, learn from it, move on. Yeah. And I think that would be the key because I, I have had times in my life where I've struggled admitting my mistakes. I've struggled, you know, just being honest with, like, oh, I screwed up. All right, well, what do I do now? Right. You know, instead, it's like, well, I, you know, I didn't do that. I, you know, sort of that defensive posture. Yeah. And that's not healthy. That's not uh, life. So I think that would be what I'd say to him. Most of anything is learn how to honor and respect yourself because if you don't do it, no one else will. Yeah. That's great. I love that. And this has been such a great joy for me. I feel like I've learned a lot myself, but just giving how many things you have going on and and sort of competing priorities, I really appreciate the time you took to speak with us. Yeah. No, thanks for having me on. I I think what you're doing is terrific. I think, you know, your, your field is so key, especially for young people, to really just dive into their humanity yeah. and what's important to them. And, yeah. you know, we all need, we all need to know the ways of the world, but the most important is how you treat yourself yes. and the, the goals you set and why you set them and who you align with. I'm, I'm working on a project right now about the Crips and the Bloods, with, you know, gangs here in Los Angeles. Wow. And we had this great moment with one of the guys who really made a life for himself and got out of the, got out of the game. And the last time he got out of prison, a friend of him sat down and said, do you want to stop going to prison? And he's like, yeah, I really do. He goes, then stop hanging out with other people who go to prison. Right. And it was just this, you know, he's a 22-year-old guy who's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like he hadn't thought of that. Yeah. You're, you have superpower. It's your choice. And it's hard for people to see, but that's, I think... You know, sitting well, here at 50 years old and after three careers and, right. and a lot of nicks and bruises and lawsuits and businesses failed and all that stuff, I can look back and say, if I take care of myself yeah. and I'm happy and I'm treating myself well, other things really tend to work out much better. Well, and I loved what you said. I even wrote it down about, you know, when you've been in re- like working relationships with people where they cared about you versus thinking of you as a commodity and I believe that that is the, that statement is, is so true 
kind of wherever you are in in relationships mm-hmm. um even if you yeah, are especially nice... as a boss especially right. as a manager yeah and and when you think of the yeah. think of the dedication and just hard work you will get out of people if you care for them and it, like them and treat them well yeah and people you know, know it hard driving like oh i gotta keep my thumb on somebody it's like yeah they're gonna squirm out and run away right <laughs> right and people know it like they know that people can read it whether that's authentic yeah. or not and so being able to spot those people like you being able to through experience or have that antennae up so you are you are seeking people that treat you well as a human and then the work yeah. follows it's so powerful so i love that you you said that and um i really it resonates with me for sure well, well, thank you, Teresa. This has been fun. Yep. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. For me, there were so many great quotes and teachings in this discussion. I agree that taking care of yourself is critical. We need to do that first uh, before we can help others or support others. I love what you said about choices. Are you causing something or are you allowing it? I think that's a great reflection that we all can think about after we go through something challenging. Being curious and figuring out exactly what gets you excited. And lastly, when things go south, you make a mistake, then you admit it and just move on. Thank you again for your time. It was great sitting down and talking with you. Thanks to Missy, the producer on this episode. And as a reminder, if you like this discussion, please subscribe, leave comments, and rate Relatable. We can be found on most streaming platforms. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Twitter and the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable.